When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. The definition of recession. A record 3.3 million U.S. workers asking for help in just the past week. Help, though, is coming. The $2 trillion survival stimulus package agreed by the Senate. The House votes next. And a new epicenter in the battle against the coronavirus as cases surge here in the United States. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome, as always, to our first movers all around the globe. As always, too, it's good to be with you. Now, I want to begin by talking about an economic snapshot of the U.S. economy that we've been dreading for days. As I mentioned, jobless claims in the United States rising by almost 3.3 million workers last week. That's right near the top end of expectations. It's the highest number of claims on record. Just to give you a sense, the previous record was hit back in 1982 and is one of the biggest percentage jumps week on weeks in claims ever. It's a devastating number. It's also in a way deliberate. It's a measure of the steps we're taking to shut down the economy and fight the virus. We know this, but it's also the suddenness that's been breathtaking. Most of the workers needing government assistance were gainfully employed just a few weeks ago, unable to foresee or plan for the storm ahead. Remember, it's happening all around the world, too. But this is why here in the United States, that $2 trillion aid bill with its direct cash payments and, crucially, its extension and rise of unemployment benefits is also critical. The $350 billion included in the bill as well for small business loans could also prevent further layoffs. That's the plan. And that cash needs to flow ASAP. The aid bill passed by the Senate last night. The House could vote on it by the week's end. Execution, as I've mentioned, timing is key. People desperately need money to survive the next couple of months. All right, let me give you a look at the market reaction. It's pretty unanimous there too. We've had a negative tone to US futures all morning. Red arrows, as you can see in Europe too. Asia closing lower. Japanese stocks falling some 4% after three days of solid gains. The Dow and the S&P did manage to close higher for a second straight session. The first back-to-back gains for the blue chips in over a month. We did see a lot of selling though into the close and without that actually gains would have been stronger than you see. But we did get that and you know my view. These gyrations remain unhealthy. There are simply too many unknowns. I think investors recognize that the survival bill might just be, to use the words of the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, a mere drop in the bucket to what we'll ultimately need, including kick-starting the recovery too when we get to the end of this. Now, to that end, Fed Chair Jay Powell said in a live interview this morning that there's no limit to what the central bank can do as long as the U.S. Treasury guidelines allow it. That comment is critical and we'll discuss in a moment. But in the meantime, over in Europe, the ECB taking fresh action today too. It's now able to buy as many bonds as it needs from any single country. 
So much has been done, so much more potentially to do. Let's get to the drivers and some analysis on that jobs claims numbers. 3.3 million new claims here in the United States just in the past week. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, we we were making wild guesses as to how bad it can be, but Mm. that gives you a sense of the economic damage that we're doing deliberately, as I mentioned, in order to try and fight the virus. Yeah, Julia, pretty much up there with the highest estimates that we saw coming into this. Uh, And I think what's shocking about this, as you were saying, is the speed at which it's happened. Just the previous week, the number was 281,000. This is about 11 and a half times that. So it's it's really shocking. And especially if you consider that the the, the sort of lockdowns and stay-at-home measures really sort of only came into force last week. New York's pause was signed on Friday. California's stay-at-home executive order was signed on Thursday. New York's restaurants were shut down Monday night. So it's very very quick. And I think this shows you the fragility in a way of parts of this economy. Businesses just can't keep going, even just for a few days, can't keep their workers hired uh, without the the revenue coming in. I think that the unknown in this number is what that life will be like for these unemployed people. We hope that the measures in the stimulus bill, an extra $600 uh, on top of state benefits for unemployed people will alleviate the hardship here. Certainly, we hope the loans to businesses will, will help prevent future numbers like this. But analysts already, Moody's uh, put out a statement this morning saying that they expect to see more like this in the weeks ahead. So there, there may not be an end to numbers like this for, for a little while. Yet one possible silver lining, if you can look at it like this, is that we know that labor departments in the various states were very stretched. New York State uh, Labor Department was saying that they had had to hire or in the process of hiring 65 people to process these claims. So at least they are processing a lot of these claims. That means that help will be coming to these people. The silver lining in this too and in the support measures that are hopefully going to pass this week in the House is that the unemployment benefits are being extended and the amount, the notional amount is rising. And that's now going to provide support to a huge swathe, an underestimated, I think, swathe of the economy, which is the gig economy. Uber drivers, self-employed people, contractors. So they'll get support but it means that the claims numbers actually could be far higher as a result. We can't gauge that yet. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that we, we haven't seen before. There was a lot of concern that, that the gig economy workers, of which there are, you know, or have been a growing number leading up to this, uh, would be overlooked. But I think the other thing to point out is, you know, we heard from Jerome Powell this morning. He said, going into this, there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the US economy. And, and unemployment was a, was a bright spot among that. We, we've been seeing, uh, you know, unemployment at, at half century lows going into this. Now, this is, of course, a, a sudden stop. It's all happened very quickly. But his message was that, that, that we should be able to come out of this, that once the, the virus abates, once we start to see cases come down, confidence will return. And that will lead to, to workers being rehired, to businesses reopening, and to, and to these jobs starting to come back, Julia. Absolutely. And to your point, exactly that interplay between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, they could take these pots of lending money and scale them up. We call it leverage. Mm. This is something that I don't think we're accounting for when we talk about the $2 trillion notional amount. It's a great, great point. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that.
When can they pass it? That's the key. 96 to 0. Unity, not something we often see in US Congress, but the US Senate unanimously passing that $2 trillion coronavirus rescue package. The bill will now head, as we've been describing to the House, for a vote, we think, on Friday. It's also a huge win for President Trump, of course, getting this money to uh, the economies and the people that need it. John Harwood is at the White House for us. John, you've heard the discussion that we've just been having. Great to have unity to get this package agreed, signed off, but then it's about getting the money out to people. What are we thinking here in terms of execution? Well, we're thinking in the next several weeks, uh, either by uh, direct deposit for people who have it uh, or by uh, cutting physical checks for those who don't, uh, sometime uh, latter part of April, maybe early part of May. Uh, but it's important psychologically, of course, for people to know that it's coming. And this is one thing for all the criticism of the Trump administration, legitimate criticism for its uh, laggard response in terms of getting on top of the virus, getting on top of testing and the public health threat. Uh, this is one thing that they've gotten right. And that is every economist, as you know, and we've talked about it multiple times, has said the most important thing to do when uh, uh, employment falls off a cliff, when economic activity falls off a cliff, is to write massive checks. Drop the money out of helicopters, uh, throw it out on the street, get people and businesses feeling that they can make it to the other side and then try to make the distance between now and the other side as short as you can through your public health response. Yeah, so critical. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. Let's hope that gets signed off this week. All right, let's move on. As the U.S. Congress steps up its economic response, as you were hearing there from John, the spread of the coronavirus here is accelerating. Wednesday was the deadliest day yet, with more than 230 killed by COVID-19. Confirmed cases have now topped 65,000, and over 900 people have lost their lives. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is in Atlanta for us. Elizabeth, your context, I think, here desperately needed. As much as we talk, and we talk endlessly, it seems, about the, the testing and the need to continue to ramp that up, the more we test, the more cases we'll have. So can you just give us context on precisely what we're seeing here in the United States, but also here in New York too? Right. So what infectious disease experts and epidemiologists are telling me, Julia, is don't get too, too stuck on these numbers, because as yes. we do more testing, we will certainly see more cases. But and I know this sounds a little bit like I'm contradicting myself, but I'll explain in a minute. There is, still is no question but that this virus is spreading. Is it getting bigger by this number, by that number, by this percent, by that percent? In a way, it doesn't really matter. We know that it is spreading at a very fast rate. And really, the numbers to really key into are hospitalization numbers. And we don't have good national hospitalization numbers and death numbers. And you said that number, you know, the biggest single number of deaths in one day, you know, more than 200. 20 deaths in one day. I mean, that that speaks volumes right there. You know, we we've been talking throughout the beginning of this show about the containment measures and the economic impact that they're having. Is it too early to get a sense of whether the social distancing, the closures of businesses are having any kind of impact? We assume they are. But when it will we know? <laughs> 
Right, Julia, unfortunately, it will take another couple of weeks before mm -hmm. we know that. We just don't know. And that is why people, the, the experts that I've been talking to are, are really are not on the, on, are not with Trump. You know, Trump is saying, hey, we need to get this economy going again. The cure, meaning all of these shutdowns might be worse than the actual disease. They're saying, you know what? We need to give this more time to work. We, we know what we're doing is right. We know that keeping people apart from each other is the right way to go. You know, we've seen, for example, in China when they've said, okay, now it's time. We'll let people go, you know, back to work and get started, try to get things going again, that indeed those numbers come up. So there's some delicate balance about how to do this. Governor Cuomo in New York has said maybe there's some middle ground here where we take people who we know are immune to the virus because we can tell from their blood tests that they've already had it and they've recovered, maybe they can have more freedom to go back to work. But as far as everybody going back to work, that doesn't seem prudent right now. And for that, you require tests, 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 and more tests. And right. we're still working on that. Elizabeth Cohen, always a pleasure. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. All right, now to an urgent call to action for the world's poorest. The World Bank and the IMF want to suspend all debt payments by 76 developing nations immediately. And they want the G20 on board. The leaders of the world's biggest economies have been meeting in an emergency virtual summit over the past hour. John Defterius joins me now. John, it's something I've been calling for in individual nations. And here in the United States, we've seen it sporadically in states. We haven't seen a blanket. You were way ahead of the curve here, though, for emerging market nations and said there needs to be a fund because on a health perspective, on a financial perspective, they're going to struggle more than anyone. Uh, clearly, that is the case, Julie. I think it's vital, personally, looking at from this uh, viewpoint, uh, from the Middle East, looking south, for example, into Africa. I have to say, for this G20 meeting, it's supposed to last 75 minutes, and they've been at it about 40 minutes. That's quite an agenda for what is on the table here. I think the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, uh, said it extremely well. He said it is a global health threat. Uh, from the global south that will affect everybody. So we have to rally to the cause. He, for example, is trying to start a $2 billion fund for uh, urgent medicines and equipment going into these developing countries. Uh, and when you talk about the lending from the IMF and the World Bank, it's less than $100 billion. To me, that seems like small beer, knowing that there's been better than $4 trillion from the G7 plus China going into their economies. Uh, the debt relief, they have about $40 billion on the table. They're looking to freeze that uh, debt for about $15 billion. So again, it's not a lot of money here. Uh, these are small economies, but it is uh, essential for it to happen. We talk about 76 countries. It's a quarter of the population. And we've talked about these countries earlier in the week when, he, uh, when we raised this issue. Nigeria and Pakistan, about 400 million people. That's bigger than the United States. So you can see the challenge around the corner for a country that doesn't have the money to inject at this stage. You know, a lot of these nations as well are big oil exporters, so it's a double whammy of the revenue hit on that side. I can't help but um, just put two and two together here and perhaps make five. But you do have some of the biggest players, the Mike Pompeos, uh, MBS, of course, from Saudi Arabia. What hopes of perhaps coming to some agreement here that that could be one thing that could add a little bit of underpinning and support to, to the fears at this moment? 
Well, we're seeing that price war still play out here. Uh, Vladimir Putin, before the G20 summit started, said uh, this is not a venue to discuss the price war. Uh, that did not stop Mike, uh, Pompeo, though, the Secretary of State. Uh, he challenged Mohammed bin Salman, saying, look, you're the crown prince, a rising leader in the country, the chair of the G20. You kind of need to rise to the occasion here and look at the damage from uh, the price war. And then again, he had a phone call with the crown prince here of Abu Dhabi. As you and I have talked about before, the UAE was involved uh, in this price war as well, adding a million barrels a day. And the problem we have, Julia, they're adding four million barrels a day in April, right? We have demand destruction of 15 million barrels. So we're looking at nearly 20% of global demand collapsing right now. So even if they had an agreement, I can't see a huge rise in oil prices. But fair point by uh, Pompeo. This is not the time for the price war. Saudi Arabia and Russia think this is. And I'll tell you why, because there's latest studies that I've looked at here show that U.S. production will drop about two and a half million barrels between now and the end of 2021. It takes it just above 10 million barrels a day. That's what the Saudis want to accomplish right now. Did they pick the right time and a very sensitive coronavirus? That's what Pompeo is suggesting right now. And final point here, Julia, I think it's a huge challenge for the G20. It celebrated its 20th anniversary last year. Did you hear about it? No because it's been sleeping for the last 10 years since the global financial crisis, not helping that the U.S. and China are not on the best of terms. Donald Trump is not a globalist, uh, and this is a global organization. Some might be uh, arguing at this point they've been sleeping for longer, John, but we've basically got a health crisis, an economic crisis, a jobs crisis, and a financial crisis all around the world, and yet ego crisis still rules there, it seems. I said it, not you. John Defteris, thank you so much. Join us for a CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, hosted by Anderson Cooper and Dr. Sanjay Gupta, live at 8 o'clock in the evening in New York, Thursday, 4 o'clock in the morning, Friday in Abu Dhabi. It will replay at 12 a.m. and 8 a.m. respectively. So if you want to hear from us on all the uh, facts and things to uh, focus on in this virus outbreak, that's where you need to be. We're going to take a break. Coming up on First Move, the U.S. Senate finally approving that $2 trillion stimulus bill. The question is, will it be enough short-term and to kickstart a recovery? Plus, as jobless claims spike in the United States, how the restaurant industry is handling the crisis. That next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. I'll get my teeth in two. Futures are pointing to a lower open this morning after two straight days of gains. Actually, look at that. We've about turned and we're in the green. These markets, volatility is all I promise you. We're also digesting the data today. 3.3 million Americans filing unemployment benefit claims in the past week. Top end of expectations. What's scary still, of course, is that those claims will surely rise in the coming weeks as we await the impact of the survival bill passed by Congress feeding in and providing cash support. In the meantime, yields on short-term U.S. debt have fallen into negative territory. This, as all the buying, of course, and the anticipated buying from the Federal Reserve kicks in. Bond prices up, yields down. Richard Koo is chief economist at Nomura Research Institute and joins us now. Richard, fantastic to have you on the show. First, we're already seeing the economic damage of uh, measures that we're taking deliberately to try and suppress the, the virus outbreak. But of course, the damage to the economy now just only beginning to uh, come clear. Yes, yes. Well, this is going to be a very different uh, financial atmosphere for all of us in, in this business in that we were living in a world where there was plenty of money in the financial market. 
and we had plenty of money in the financial market because we were in the world in the world that is about three months ago until uh, we were in the world where households were deleveraging, companies were deleveraging, central banks were adding money to the to get the economy to move and inflation rates to go up. That world flooded with cash uh, was with us for like 12 years. And then once this pandemic hit, everything is turned upside down. Mm. Companies are dissaving because their revenues are, are reduced, but you still have to pay the rent and the workers and so forth. Households also, as our, our jobless numbers uh, just, just came out, uh, indicate, were also put into a very difficult position. They have to dissave. And so the kind of money that was flooding the financial market is now disappearing. And this is something we never experienced for the last 12 years. So uh, I think one of the reasons why both the stock market and the bond market suffered so much in the last uh, two weeks or so, I think comes from this fundamental shift in the way the money is moving through the financial market. You know, you are famous for your analysis, your work on balance sheet recessions, as you've kind of painted a picture of there. How does a pandemic yes. recession play out? And you've already hinted at it. And I guess what I'm trying to get to is what kind of policy response is required and have what we've seen from the Federal Reserve and now with this stimulus bill in the United States, is that enough in your mind? Uh, well, as so many experts said, you know, this depends a lot on the medical outcome. And so I don't think I will be uh, adding much in, in that uh, direction. But during the balance sheet recession, the world we lived in for the last 12 months until about January of this year, basically, people were repairing balance sheet, deleveraging. And so <clears throat> if you're deleveraging, you're not borrowing money. The money you're returning to the banks, you're returning to the to the lenders, and that's why interest rates came down to such low levels. If you look at the flow funds for the United States, Europe, and Japan, the private sector were massive savers, not borrowers, even though we have interest rates down to zero or negative. And in that world, the problem was lack of borrowing, and so government had to come in and borrow money to spend to keep the economy mm -hmm. going. This is what. Uh, ben Bernanke talked about and, and Janet Yellen talked about fiscal cliff because in a national economy, if someone is saving money or paying down debt, you have to have someone on the other side borrowing and spending money. And that's why we needed fiscal policy as the key uh, treatment against balance sheet recession. And in this world, monetary policy was not all that effective because if there are no borrowers, money cannot really leave the financial sector and leave it into the real economy. Now we're in a different uh, situation. GDP collapsed first. Uh, I'm sure if you take a snapshot of GDP now, it's probably down 20%, 30% in some parts of the country, maybe down 50% because everything is under <coughs> lockdown. So now people don't have the revenue, don't have the income to, to make the ends meet. So you need the fiscal policy to put the money into all these people uh, that are suffering. and. I'm, I'm glad that now U.S. is uh, working on it. Germans, Europeans are also working on it. Japanese are working on it as well. But now the monetary policy becomes a lot more important during the balance sheet recession in that, as I indicated to you at the beginning, financial market is becoming tighter and tighter as people this say, take the money out of the financial market, selling stocks, selling bonds, 
to get the cash, to pay the rent, pay the workers, pay the suppliers, and so forth. In that world, the uh, market could tighten very, very quickly. We have already seen that uh, some of that. Then the central bank has to be in there to provide sufficient liquidity to make sure that uh, at least the government will be able to borrow money at very low rates and uh, possibly uh, private sector as well. So in this situation, we need both the fiscal policy and the monetary policy. And that's a key difference between the world we lived in until about January of this year. Richard, you're so incredible at painting the picture and describing the the various crises that we're struggling with and and explaining why we have to deal with both monetary and fiscal and in size. We will get you back to talk about what the recovery could look like, but we'll finish here for now. Fantastic to have you with us, sir, and stay safe. Richard Koo, Chief Economist Thank at Nomura Research Institute. The Market Open is next. first move and trading getting underway on Wall Street this morning. You're looking at the New York Stock Exchange, of course, only electronic trading going on at the moment for safety reasons, of course. We've got a modestly higher open for stocks. Actually, now, look at that, we're above 1%. This is after two days of gains for the Dow and the S&P. Major volatility, I think, is uh, still the name of the game. We've been seeing concerns for days about what kind of numbers we would see on those unemployment claims today. The first snapshot of what's going on in the real economy as a result of the measures that we're taking to try and suppress the health crisis and the coronavirus. The numbers, as bad as some of the more dire forecasts, claims, that we've, as we've been describing, rising by almost 3.3 million people last week. That's an all-time record. The jump in claims from the week before, just staggering. And that, of course, as we've been arguing, is why that $2 trillion aid package passed in the House, hopefully, and gets signed by the president by this weekend is so critical. And that will hopefully save more job losses down the line, prevent more job losses. That said, money probably won't get to needy Americans before April 1st and beyond. And that's when rent and mortgage payments are due. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin says money will probably be in accounts by April 6th. So that is good news if it happens. Richard Quest joins me now. Richard, you know, you and I battle mm-hmm. about these markets day and forth forth and back. Um, I'm still cautious. I think the volatility remains a real concern here. The hope, of course, is that with some of the economic data that we're seeing, the measures that are being put in place will stem those losses eventually. But it could be a few weeks yet. It could. And what I found interesting, <coughs> excuse me, what I found interesting this morning, Julia, was we knew this number was going to be bad. Some people had even said it, Oxford Economics had said it could be up to four million. So we were prepared for an awful number. But seeing it and computing it and then realizing what 3.28 million people means, then you realize the awfulness of this. And this is not just in the United States, because if you think of the countries that have now shut shop, the United Kingdom, France, Spain, Germany, the whole swathe of the EU, you now realize that we're talking tens of millions of people who are today out of work, hoping to rely on some form of government support, which may or may not do the trick. And Julia, you know, what's very clear today 
uh, by that number is that the importance in the $2 trillion package is the long-term unemployment benefit. Many of these people will not be able to get jobs again in the short term, maybe even the medium term. That money will keep, thank God, their, them and their families afloat. I know, it's so critical. Now, the good news, or perhaps the bad news here, Richard, is that the G20 is meeting on the phone, riding to the rescue like the charge of the light brigade, minus the horses and the lights are switched off. What good can they do, Richard? Tell me. Oh, dear. Someone show me his face. The... I have... The G20 is, besides those two meetings... One in London in 2008-9 and one in Washington, outside Washington, in 2009. Besides then, the G20 at the, at the, at the executive level, the chief executive level, leadership level, is the biggest waste of time that I think I've ever had the misfortune to have to cover. Um, first of all, the Finmans say significant downturn in the economy. Now we have an hour-long uh, meeting Look, this is not a time for the G20. They've got no role to play, except maybe, maybe minor coordination of secondary policies. Uh, Their ability to coordinate. I've always said, you've started me now, Julia, be prepared for this. How can you have any meaningful organization that has sitting at the table countries as disparate as the US, China, Russia, Saudi, the European Union, Australia? They've got too many different policies within them. So I have absolutely zero confidence that the G20 will do anything more than, than rack up a phone bill. Yeah, I wish I could argue with you, Richard, but um, I can't. I'm always prepared for you, however, and I do love your sighing on my show. Um, good for the business community, though, because the business community is stepping up where national leaders can't coordinate on an individual level, never mind anybody else. But when I'm getting told off, I have to finish. Richard, a pleasure, always. <laughs> Richard Quest there. All right. U.S. restaurant operators say the pandemic could cost as many as 7 million jobs in their industry. At least 40 states have banned eating in restaurants. The U.S. has more than 1 million restaurants with over 15 million staff. Executives from the fast food sector recently spoke with President Trump discussing food delivery and drive-through services and essential, of course, for, for getting food to people. Joining us now, CEO of Restaurant Brands International, Jose Sill. The company owns Burger King, Popeyes and Tim Hortons. So fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much. I know you're part of a critical effort at getting food to people and relieving some of the burden on grocery stores. Just tell me first what you're seeing and what you're doing among your franchisees and and the businesses, of course, that you operate and measures to protect workers here too. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been an incredible uh, effort on the part of our franchise owners uh, here in the U.S., uh, in Canada, and all around the world to try to address uh, a need uh, in each of the communities in which they operate in, in a very difficult time. So uh, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been working with uh, the federal government uh, here in the U.S. and, and in Canada uh, with state uh, officials as well as uh, local officials to, to really ensure everyone understands the, the critical role that we play, uh, that restaurants play in, uh, in this time of need. Uh, it's an essential service drive-through uh, delivery, uh, mobile order, pay and pickup. Uh, we've Im- implemented contactless or very low contact procedures uh, to ensure that the, the process takes advantage of all the technology that we have to, and, and to ensure that there's minimum contact, uh, if any, 
uh, as the as the food is prepared, uh, as well as handed over to uh, to consumers to get through, through delivery or through the drive-through. So it's been a, an incredible effort on the part of our owners, as well as a part of our teams in the restaurants. And I couldn't be prouder of our organization, our franchisees for Burger King, Popeyes, Tim Hortons, and the and the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually in the U.S. of employees that we have that are in the front line every day. Absolutely. What does it mean in terms of employee numbers? Because as you point out, you're sort of ramping up takeaway deliveries, but at the same time, in many cases in this country and beyond, you simply can't go and sit in restaurants. So that reduces that demand for workers. Are people going to lose their jobs? And what do you make of the support coming in now from from US Congress? Because the hope is that it will prevent those losses, of course. Yeah, that's why it's been so important to be able to work with the federal government and, and see the, the progress being made in, in Washington on, on this uh, uh, kind of mind-boggling and first-of-its-kind bill. I think someone referred to it as a wartime type of bill that addresses, um, it, very importantly, employees and, and hourly employees and folks that uh, that have potentially lost their, their jobs. And obviously, with the, the new numbers that we've seen, there's been a, millions of folks that have lost their, um, their jobs. And so the unemployment insurance is really critical at this moment. And then also at the same time, providing um, liquidity and financing, much needed financing to uh, restaurant operators, small businesses that employ so many thousands uh, of employees all around uh, the country. And so the, the combination of the bill around relief and stimulus, uh, we think was critical and, and we applaud um, uh, Washington for moving quickly to address it. The, the sooner those funds get into the hands of, uh, of, of our population as well as uh, the, the, the proceeds of these uh, these financing arrangements get to the small business owners, the, the quicker we'll be able to address the needs of, of both the, the consumers as well as the employees. I think also the world is watching what happens in China, how successfully they manage to reopen the economy, but also how customers behave, whether they're willing to go into restaurants and stores again and be around people. What are you seeing there? Yeah, we're very encouraged by what we're seeing in China and South Korea. I think uh, I think our yeah. business partners there, our franchisees for Burger King and Tim Hortons and soon Popeyes in, in China have been working really hard uh, to get back uh, into uh, a groove, if you will, from a business standpoint. And, and consumers are coming out, they're coming to the restaurants. The delivery may, continues to be a really strong part of the business. Uh, and the dining business is picking up as well. Uh, so we're, we're really excited and, and optimistic long-term uh, with the, the business coming back. And, and we work uh, really hard every day to ensure that we're delivering a really safe uh, experience in our restaurants with great tasting food. And our team members in, in China and South Korea are giving us uh, hope and optimism that, that this road to recovery uh, will be one that uh, will be right in front of us uh, really soon. It's encouraging news and I'm, I'm very glad to hear it. One more quick question. There's obviously the debate here about whether we can achieve a staggered reopening of of the U.S. economy in some way. What's your view here? Should health and getting on getting in control of this this virus outbreak be the priority? And does it should it be the priority over perhaps the economy here? For us as a business and and having so many employees and guests that that interact with us on a daily basis across the country with our three brands, uh, health and well-being of our employees and our guests has been number one priority uh, and and continues to be a number one priority that we've put in procedures, uh, heightened procedures for for hand washing and and, uh, and sanitizing of the restaurants to ensure that everything we do is safe and and, and, and the best of, of, of conditions for our employees and for our guests. 
And so I think that's, that remains their priority. We'll work with uh, the local authorities and federal authorities uh, to move as quickly as we can. Uh, but uh, our focus continues to be and will always be on, on the health and well-being of our team members and our guests. Makes perfect sense to me. And I just want to say, we don't have time to discuss it, but I know you announced you're giving away 200,000 free school meals for children if they are ordering via the app. So I just wanted to thank you for that because we obviously have lots of children who get food at school and quite simply aren't doing that now. So, sir, thank you for your um, efforts to help in this environment. Thank you for recognizing that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Great to have you with us. All right, still to come on First Move. What can we take from treating Ebola that could be applied to the coronavirus outbreak? One company hoping past experience mixed with a lot of innovation can help us at this moment. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. In time of crisis, innovation is often key to turning the tide. Regeneron is a company with a proven track record in developing a treatment for Ebola. It's now trying to use past experience to discover new therapeutic antibodies to treat coronavirus patients and to protect people not yet exposed to it. I'm very excited to introduce Dr. George Yankopoulos. He's the President and Chief Science Officer at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Yankopoulos, fantastic to have you with this. Dr. Fauci, who's become, a, I think, a household name now around the world, has said that having an active vaccine could be one, two years away. What can you tell me about potential vaccine substitutes? Because I know this is part of the work that you guys are furiously focused on at this moment. Exactly, Julie. We're trying to come up with things that could help in the near term until these very important vaccines are produced and proven safe and effective. And we can actually, we've shown in the case of Ebola and in other settings that we can create a near-term vaccine substitute. A vaccine generates an immune response in the body to fight and protect against the virus. Well, we can literally create that that vaccine response, the immune response outside of the body. We have a special technology that we've developed over many years to be able to do this. We can grow this vaccine type of a response, the immune response outside of the body. These are called antibodies. We can grow them in large bio, uh, bioreactors and then inject them back into people. It's what's called a passive vaccine. It's not quite as good as a active vaccine in that it doesn't result in lifetime immunity, but it can last for months and protect critical, for example, healthcare workers or people at high risk like children with cystic fibrosis or the elderly and so forth. So it could really make an impact to help some of the people that we most need to protect against the virus. So that's one of the near-term approaches that we have. We've been doing it in record time. It's the same thing that we did Ebola there. We got it into patients within about nine months. Um, for, for this crisis, our team is looking to have this in patients by this June, which would be five to six months, it would really be a world record in terms of getting anything like this uh, into patients and it could really provide protection and maybe even treatment for certain patients. And that's one of our two near-term approaches that can maybe change the course of the impact of this devastating crisis uh, until we can get the active vaccines on board. This is incredible. So you're saying you could actually be implementing this by around June of this year. I want to just ask you as well, because there are a lot of fears that when we get to the fall, we could see a resurgence of cases, but in a mutated form. So is there a way perhaps of combining 
antibodies so that there's one vaccine substitute that you use that could even protect against a resurgence of something that comes back in, even if it's mutated? No, you're absolutely right. That's a real concern. So we create what's called an antibody cocktail. It's a collection yeah. of at least two antibodies, and they are selected so that they work against all the known variants and mutants, and it could protect, hopefully, even against uh, general variants that you might have. It's not a guarantee. There's always concern. But the hope is exactly as you said. If we get this into patients and if we can test it, uh, by the end of the summer, beginning of fall, there might be an effective way to protect people, um, uh, at least some of the most critical people that we need to be protecting in an effective way using this um, vaccine substitute. One of the other things I know that you're working on as well, and, and I think we've often read about it and, it and it makes us all afraid, is this overactive inflammatory response that we see in the lungs. And that sort of overwhelms the patients and, and often we see them dying as a result. Talk to me about Kevzara, because I know this is something that you're wondering whether and testing whether could perhaps be used to prevent that. The key being, then maybe we need less ventilators if you can prevent that response. Where are you with that? Now, as you say, I mean, one of the reasons why this crisis is so devastating is because even if it's only a small percentage of the people, um, that's a huge number of people coming in needing intensive care treatment, needing ventilators, and the healthcare system is not really designed for that. And that's causing a lot of the fear and the devastation. And what happened was, was when this was happening in China, uh, just like we are now, they were desperate to do anything. And so they tried a, um, because like you said, they thought that the lung problem might not be caused by the virus itself, but the body's overreaction, excessive inflammation in response to it. They tried a, 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 a drug that was developed by a Japanese uh, company called Shugai that was blocking the certain kind of inflammation that they were seeing in the lung because this was inflammation that was related to what you see in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and they reported stunning results, but in an uncontrolled fashion, what you call anecdotes. It was not placebo controlled, but the results were uh, very, very promising. And that got a lot of people excited because it could change how we deal with this devastating disease. And so in the United States, it turns out that um, we have the only other drug that is related uh, to this to this drug that was tried in China. It's very closely related and approved also for rheumatoid arthritis. It works almost by a, a, the, the same exact mechanism. So everybody got together. The FDA, they want to know. They don't want thousands or tens of thousands or hundred thousand, even millions of people treated by something that might work. Um, it could also maybe do harm. Until you study it, you don't really know. So the head of the FDA, the head of the FDA drug division, everybody got together. BARDA, um, the governor of New York State was very interested. Everybody got together to try to help us to get a clinical study going. And unbelievably, in record time, we got a study going. Uh, we initiated last week. We've already treated about 100 patients. And we hope that within a few weeks to maybe a month or two, we will have a definitive answer. We will know whether this class of drugs and our drug, Kevzara in particular, can really impact the devastating lung problems that people get with the coronavirus. And if it does, and there's still a big if, but if it does in this well-controlled study, it could really change the course of history here. Wow. I mean, it ringing in my ears is 
Governor Cuomo's ventilators, 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 and the fact that we simply don't have enough. I know it's wrong to ask you this question because you need statistical significance. Uh, I understand enough about statistics to know that, but is what you're seeing at this stage encouraging? Well, the reason we're doing it is because the stories coming out of China were very encouraging, and we also have increasing what they call anecdotal reports, physicians using this drug and claiming that it's really helping people. That's why we're trying it. We're very hopeful. But until you have the definitive study, you yeah. don't know for sure. But like you said, Governor Cuomo and his um, his New York State Health Commissioner, Howard Zucker, they were on this way before other people were, and they said, wow, we are going to have a devastation here. We may not be able to deal with the need for ventilators and hospital support. And that's why from the very beginning, uh, they joined with us, as did the federal government, as did the FDA, as did BARDA. Everybody says we have to test this. We have to know if it really is going to make a difference and, and, and change change the course of how this disease is devastating us. You, you guys are heroes. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I often say this is a war, and I, I do believe that um, Governor Cuomo is uh, the best general we've got right now. So it's very encouraging to hear. Sir, thank you, and thank you to your team, too. It's okay. phenomenal yeah. work. Thank you, Dr. Right. George Jankopoulos there. Fantastic. We're back after this. Stay with us. first move with the final check of what we're seeing for stock market action and all three major averages are firmly in positive territory at this moment all sectors as you can see higher looking at the Dow 30 as well we've got Yep, most stocks there. Higher. Boeing, in fact, posting the best gains. The cavalry has arrived in the form of this stimulus, I think, which is permeating these markets. We were volatile, though, and I think we will continue to be volatile. We also had that weak U.S. unemployment number, the claims numbers, rising by some 3.3 or just shy of claims in the last week. An all-time record. Let's get that stimulus flowing. That's the message of the day. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Take care of yourselves and each other. We'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.